I think anytime you're in a place where you have to compromise and you have to work with people of difference, it makes you better. Like right. when you're surrounded by everyone who thinks like you, that's how fundamentalism happens. Yeah, of all stripes. Of all stripes. Yep. And I think there's a give and a take with the compromise of living here. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I feel like it's, it's made me sharper. I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is, as so many guests are, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Luna Malbro is a comedian, a writer, a playwright, a diversity and inclusion consultant, and a trained social worker. Luna uses humor to shine a light on politics and identity in America. And she has an amazing story and an amazing body of work from a hilarious equity-creating app to her thought-provoking theater production to her amazing socially conscious stand-up. But as you'll hear, none of those alone fully represent what she thinks of as her work. And I'll let her tell you more about that. Luna and I sat down together on a beautiful Friday morning in late summer at the American Sign Museum in Cincinnati's Camp Washington neighborhood. Look, I know I say this a lot, but this is an episode where you really have to check out the photos on our website, in this case by the amazing Angie Lipscomb. The American Sign Museum is a time capsule, a museum dedicated to the art and history of commercial signs and sign making. It is the largest public museum of signage in the United States. The 20,000-square-foot warehouse contains over 100 years of commercial signage, and you can take a guided or self-guided tour or just wander the museum on your own. Luna and I actually hid out in the Sign Museum's workshop, which is a wonderland of neon and carpentry and sign-making knowledge and a quiet place away from the museum's visitors and the hum of the historic neon signs. Check out the website thedistillerpodcast.com, and get a feel for the setting we were in as you listen. Now, I had never met Luna before we sat down this conversation, but I knew I was in for a treat, just reading through her website and doing some background research. But still, I loved hearing how Luna ties all her threads together into a single quilt that is uniquely her. It is so easy to see someone's online presence and think they have everything figured out. But Luna was honest about the challenges of work that is so varied and about the daily process of piecing it all together. And it's amazing to see someone with such a clear vision of what her work is express that in such varied and interesting ways. So let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Luna Malbro on The Distiller. Well, cheers. Cheers. Good morning. Thank you for, for joining me at the... Sign Museum amid all the um, all the neon. Yeah, happy to be here with, in what I hope is chemically safe environment. <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know, as far as we know, it is. I usually start off um, just asking people sort of what they do. I feel like for you, this is a this is a really loaded question that oh, I'm actually yeah. excited to hear you answer. Yeah, and it's not necessarily what's your job. Just what is your work? Mm -hmm. uh, let's start off right there in whatever way you want to answer that question. Yeah, I think my work is really simple. Uh, the doing is more complicated, mm -hmm. but my work is really simple. I explore complex ideas in a way that people can understand. That's it. Cool. Often using humor, mm -hmm. sometimes using uh, storytelling, mm -hmm. but really complex ideas, like how we live 
and making that really tangible and accessible and like felt in your body. Awesome. In whatever form. Whatever form that is. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, on your website it says uh, comedian, uh, playwright, author. Yeah. But then you look deeper into and you're an app developer yeah. and you have a master's in social work from yeah. Columbia. And there's another website that has diversity and inclusion training, but that I keep separate from that. So, okay. Yeah. So the, it's a, I think the, the thread around um, comedy and writing is, I feel like if you're a writer these days, you ha- kind of have to diversify your stuff. And mm-hmm. I so happened to stumble upon a contest where I was able to develop an app, which was really amazing. Um, playwriting, writing sketches, writing what I hope to be a future novel, um, writing blogs and writing posts for different websites and doing stand-up comedy. That kind of, I feel like, is the business of yeah. being a writer these days. Yeah. And, and all of that is kind of like we're we're living in a slash slash. Totally. <laughs> is that is that all stuff that like you feel given the opportunity you would want to do that stuff anyway, or is that the necessity of being a writer and you have to put as many things out there as possible to cast the net and see what's going to hit? I think a little bit of both. I think at first it was uh, casting the net, and then I'm like, oh no, I'm really good at exploring like what comedy looks like in different genres, like comedy in app form, comedy mm. in play form, comedy in uh, TV form. So, um, I think that's, that's really cool. It's just like, how many different genres can I yeah. explore? Yeah. I'm really excited about. So how much stand up do you do these days? I do a lot of stand up still. Okay. Uh, I think being relatively new to the Cincinnati uh, scene, I'm still trying to kind of get my feet in, but I just performed last weekend. And whereas I used to perform literally every night, yeah. it's now it's more about quality over quantity. Okay. And I'm in the process of creating my own show here in Cincinnati, which I'm really excited about to just have something regular that I'm producing myself. And then I do shows that go bananas and work with other comedians and various shows that they do here, which is really cool. And across the country also. Yeah. Is the standup, is it, um, how do I phrase this? Like so much of your stuff is kind of, is kind of mission driven. Is that communication piece of taking complex ideas and specifically about inclusion and diversity in a lot of the work that you've done. Is the stand-up a vehicle for that? Is or is the stand-up something that you would be yeah. that you would be doing regardless of whether it was the opportunity for such a specific yeah. material? Stand-up is I I think I've got at first the stand-up was a vehicle for that and then I got into the point where I realized the stand-up is a vehicle for me. Mm-hmm. And uh I don't know if you remember the movie uh what was what was that movie? They okay, it was the Bruce Willis movie. It was, he was a superhero but it was very subtle. It was the M Night Shyamalan. I forgot the yeah, name of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh I know exactly it's which bothering one me that you're I talking about. It's one of my favorites. Uh, Unbreakable. Anyway. Yes. With Samuel Jackson. Yes. So I had this thought the other day when I was thinking of it. There's this monologue Samuel Jackson goes into in that movie where he's just like, you know, many superheroes have an alter ego, but Superman's alter ego is actually pretending to be human. Mm -hmm. He's actually Superman and he pretends to be us, like bumbling that, that idiot, that kind of like klutzy person is his interpretation of us. And I had this thought the other day when I was just like, oh my gosh, that's me with stand up like I feel like when I go throughout my day I feel pretty contained and I'm 
containing myself and pretending to be <laughs> a normal person. Uh-huh. But on stage, I'm very much myself and That's I'm very comfortable. You. And I'm like, yeah, it's the real me. And I think because I'm in a lot of environments where I have to put on a face, yeah. either where there's like facilitating or, you know, working or doing communication stuff, it's just like very reserved. And, and, and I think just being a black woman in the United States, I'm always like pulling you know, it in. Pulling it in and yeah. analyzing my surroundings and figuring out where I can be where. But on stage, it's just like, well, this is my, you entered my room. <laughs> Here <laughs> it know? is. You paid. Yeah, this is yep. my this is my space now. So I'm taking over and I can just awesome. kind of relax and just say what I need to say and be what I need to be. When, uh, when was the first time you did stand-up? Ooh, uh, I feel like it was in 2000 and... 12 is about six or seven years ago. And I grew up acting. I grew up, you know, I grew up in a small town. We had a little theater. I was there all the time. Mm. I was the city like thespian um, and grew up doing like comedic acting as well. So I was super comfortable on stage and I did not think about stand up comedy at all. It was something that did not cross my mind as something I wanted to do. But it was when I moved to San Francisco from New York City and I was working as a therapist and I was really stressed and I stumbled upon an open mic and it was just horrible, like most open mics are. (laughs) And I thought to myself, oh, I could give this a try. And I think maybe like a week later, I gave it a try at an open mic and did really good. Nice. Um, And then Did you have a set or were you just sort of riffing? It's funny because I had this joke I thought of as I was walking, and it's a a joke I still tell to this day every now and then. Um, A couple of jokes I still tell to this day from the first jokes I did. But I kind of had two big jokes in my head, and then everything else kind of flowed from that. Nice. Yeah. It felt good. Yeah, it felt good. Cool. And it was something that I didn't think that I was going to take seriously because I've tried a lot of stuff and I never stuck with anything. But Mm -hmm. I got asked to do shows um, and kind of got asked to do shows for a couple of years to the point where I'm like, oh, I should take this seriously. Yeah. And then started taking it seriously. Cool. So you, you touched on this a little bit. I'm just interested in how does a degree in social work from Columbia get to all the stuff that you're doing right now? And I, I yeah. suspect there's a lot more in it than just starting with that degree. So you started out acting start out acting well it's funny because I think I'm at the point where I'm bitter a little like you know (laughs) you know I'm not I'm in my early 30s and that's the point where I feel like the shit really hits the fan and you're just like oh this is like this is the stuck place this is the Uh is this what my life's gonna be or not yeah and I, I I guess I'm bitter because I was and I and I say this like completely humbly a really naturally talented kid and mm-hmm. acting and theater and all this stuff. And my parents who, you know, were, grew up in rural Southern Louisiana, you know, at a time right after it desegregation ended, mm-hmm. you know, were kind of like theater arts. You can't do any, don't do that. Like don't, that's, that's so unstable. Yeah. You got to do something really solid. You got to so have a career. You got to have a career. You have to have something to fall back on. And that was good advice for their time. Mm -hmm. And I took that advice. So I was like, okay, even though I got a scholarship to study drama in undergraduate at Loyola University, I ended up getting another scholarship to go to Southern University and majored in political science, 
wanted to go to law school at first until I realized, no, that's not quite the place. And teachers were kind of like, well, it seems like you love understanding sociology. So maybe that's it. And a social work degree is very flexible. Mm -hmm. So I kind of was like, okay, this is the path. This is a flexible degree and was interested in doing therapy, was interested in actually being a sex therapist and Mm -hmm. working with people with trauma. And so I went to school for that because my undergraduate was a great university, Southern University, but it was in the South. I really wanted the experience of having like an Ivy League education. Like Mm -hmm. what does that look like? And so it was important for me to kind of go to a top tier school for graduate school. And I was at the time very aware. I mean, I graduated right as the recession hit, you know. Um, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very aware of like how important at that time, like I felt like pedigrees were to get yeah, a job right. in a very hard place to get a job. Um, and all of this I say now is what makes me really bitter because, <laughs> <laughs> because first of all, now we're in an economy where it's just like, what is stable? Nothing yeah, is nothing stable. Nothing is stable, right. You a know, pedigree doesn't... A pedigree doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Nothing is stable. So all the kind of good advice that I was told that I took is just like, wow, if I would have just followed my passion... Right. Honestly, the most stable thing right now that's growing is realm, in the realm of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And it, despite the fact that I had this fancy graduate degree, my first job after grad school was just like, yeah, we need you to work our Twitter. And like, <laughs> okay... <laughs> <laughs> sure. So it's like, yeah, that's great. Um, but help us. We know with you got a master's media. in social. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's so funny because th- these are the things that are driving business now is like creativity right. and you know. So I'm I'm at the point right now where I'm just starting to let go of that bitterness because <laughs> like of course I'm sitting with an enormous amount of debt that I'm I now make fun of and stand up because what else are you going to do with that? Yeah, yeah. You just got to laugh about it. Um, and I mean, who cares? The economy's crashing anyway. It'll only be a matter of time before it's wiped out. Like, right. The banks that own that debt are not going to exist yeah, in five years. Yeah. So it's, I'm just, it's I'm just okay. waiting. Uh-huh. That's, that's, my, uh, yep. that's my plan. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I'm at this point where it's, things are starting to be on this up cycle where I'm getting really interesting work. Um, ask for work where it's just like, hey, we need someone who's really humorous Mm -hmm. and someone who understands societal issues to really kind of enter at this point. And it's just like, well, I happen to be a master's level social worker, clinician, and a comedian. So there's a very specific, with a lens for equity and inclusion, it can understand that world and make it funny. So it's like, this is kind of, I'm entering my stride where it's just like, wow, there's a need for this. There's a need for like, approachable language around these things. Right. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm getting out of the... Yeah, the double-edged sword of having this expensive education, but now you do have that background that makes all the other creative stuff that you're doing have so much more depth. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you are doing so much. I don't know, this is the, the problem about doing research about a guest on the internet, <laughs> is it's impossible to tell what's current. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really matter because it's all who you are and it's all part of a piece yeah. But I mean, you you wrote a play. Yep. Uh, How to Be a White Man. Yeah. Which looks amazing. Yeah. It's so fun. Are, is that still being performed? Is you know, that still current work? It's it's so interesting because it had a lot of interest. So did it um, in the Bay Area a couple of times and actually talked to a few uh, really powerful off-Broadway producers who were interested in producing it. And you know how those conversations go. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it 
can we take this to Broadway, off-Broadway? Yes, no. And then that kind of fell through the cracks and then was talking about bringing it to schools. But what happened was um, the... I felt when I wrote wrote that play first in 2016, beginning of 2016, it was a different environment culturally than it is now. Yep. And as much as there are parts of that play that are very still relevant, I feel like the title makes me uneasy to bring it mm. outside of the coastal areas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think it plays around with appropriation and positionality. Um, and even though it never was a one-person show, the the original was a cast of different characters and how they kind of struggled with identity and being seen. And it pared down. And the second time I did it with between two characters, a white male and a black female. And it was really about, like, uh, the premise was black woman really strives to get this career um, and decides to, like, create a fake white male resume with the same things that she has just to see like yep. what is yeah. what is happening. And then they end up hiring the white male and well, they hiring the fake person that she created and then right. she has to kind of go out and create an avatar. Right. So this is very much, uh, it played around with all these different ideas. And I think the thing that killed the play ongoing for me was that there was this, uh, this trailer going around called Letitia or something, but it was basically the exact opposite of my play in which a white man is trying to get a job oh. and no one's hiring him because quote unquote affirmative yeah, action. Right, right, right. So he creates a black woman persona and I'm just like, ew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, that's when that's you got to walk away. screwed up time that we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where that narrative is, is flipping back on itself. Exactly. Yeah, there was, uh, my partner's a poet, and there was a guy in the poetry world, and I'm not going to know the names, which is just fine, but there was, there was a, a, a poet who was getting a lot of press, and then it turned out it was, a, you know, I think it was just a white guy who had created this avatar of an Asian name and was writing and publishing poems under this mm. name. And when, wow. when he was outed for this, the narrative supposedly was the same. It was like I had to... I had to do this to break through. Yeah. Um, and so much of what you do is so interesting around privilege. Mm -hmm. I've had, it's a difficult conversation to have. I've, ha yeah. I've, I've had some of those conversations on this show most successfully, and I just mean successfully in terms of actually getting at the issues and having the conversation. I talked to Danny McLean. Do you know Danny? Yeah, I do. Okay. A couple yeah. of episodes Danny and I were talking about, and we were talking about her book, and we were talking about Claudia Rankin's article in the New York Times recently. Um, I don't know if you've, you've read that. I didn't see it. She basically uh, is, and we talked about it in that episode, so I won't fully unpack it, but she's just saying, I wanted to know what my, what white men thought about their own privilege, so mm. I started asking them. Mm. And it's a series of instances on airplanes where she is initially like actually trying to break through her own insecurity about these conversations. It's hard to imagine Claudia Rankin having any insecurity about these things, but it's telling the ways in which she does. And then she sort of breaks through and has, but it's like such a taboo area and so much of what you're doing is so great because it takes it sort of through the back door in the sense of through comedy exposing yeah. these things in a way that I don't know if it um, I don't know if it necessarily like deflects defensiveness if you feel like it does I that for the does. white audience yeah I, I think it does and I feel like it's interesting because I I'm not necessarily trying to I think I want to be clear because sometimes I feel like the way that 
certain things that I have created get packaged just like this helps white people learn. And yeah. that's not necessarily my goal yeah. is really just to expand conversations as a whole mm -hmm. and to really like express things from myself as an artist. Um, and I do think overall in general, people's defensiveness drops when, when, it, when, when it's about comedy yeah. and when it's about person, when it's about a person right. and when it's a story that they can relate to, I think that helps them understand. Yeah. Do you find yourself getting put in this position of you're now the spokesman for, for creating this entire dialogue for people? Yeah. I feel like that kind of happened in more so in the past. And I, I think, I think especially in the, with how to be a white man and Equitable, the app, yeah. and it was just kind of like, this is the spokesperson. And so I feel like the great thing about uh, none of that stuff really, well, not necessarily none of it <laughs> passing over to Cincinnati, but the fact that like no one knows me really in Cincinnati is that I can kind of like mm -hmm. have a fresh start and kind of explore different things outside of that paradigm. Yeah. So yeah. talk about Equitable a little bit, because it's an amazing idea. I want to let you you frame it up. Yeah. So I, so it's, I had the great pleasure of stumbling upon Comedy Hack Day, which is this competition that brings comedians and app devel developers together. And it's just like, who can pitch the funniest app? And I, at the time, it was so funny because... I get into this competition and everybody there is so techy and like they're working on these computers and they have all these fancy things. And at the time, like literally the day before my computer was stolen. So I came in with a notebook <laughs> and <laughs> I had the idea immediately of um, basically there was a lot of talk around the time about the wage gap. Mm -hmm. And I kept on hearing women make 77 cents to the dollar, but I knew that wasn't necessarily the case because I knew that black women make 64 yep. cents to the dollar and Latina women make 54 cents to the dollar. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, well, there's a, there's a racial lens here that is being missed when we talk about yeah. the wage gap. And so I really wanted to play around with that. So my idea um, at the time, based on a good friend of mine who uh, has an MBA and would always run around saying MBA things like what's what gets incentivized gets done. So I was like, okay, how can we incentivize yeah, people yeah. actually, you know, working for the wage gap? And so it's just like, well, you have to, that's a tax. You have to pay this back. So it's just like, it's basically an app that splits any dinner bill fairly based on the percentage of the U S dollar that you make. So we use real percentages from the U S Bureau of Labor Statistics, which gets a lot of people upset, but the, the percentages we use are based on research. Why does that get people upset? Because they don't agree with them? Well, because they don't agree with them. And a lot of people are like, well, I'm a white man, but I, I don't make a lot of money. So it should be gone. It should, it should go by, you know, how much money make. you make. Right, I'm like, right. no, this it's is about opportunity. This it's is about, about opportunity. History. Exactly. Yeah. And history is actually what we say we use to calculate it. So right. it's really, right. Yeah. There's a video online. I'll post it on the website of you. And I don't know if it was a, uh, TED Talker, yeah. but talking about the app, which is just genius where you're showing like how the, how the app functions. Is the app a thing now? Is it available? So it's funny because it is not available because we, we put it on iOS and after the iOS update, we have to update it. But I just uh, shared it at, a, at a, another coding convention like literally a few weeks ago. And 
couple of developers came up and were like, let's work on it. Let's let's put it back up. This has to be available again. Yeah, so good. it's currently in works again too. No, it's genius. Again. And all the different, I, I put some uh, different like app features into my notes. There's a diversity tractor, yeah. gender on a spectrum, yes, which I loved. Uh, you talk about it as affirmative fraction, yep. which is good. <laughs> and then uh, the built-in protest feature. So. You have to have a built-in protest feature. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's fantastic. If you're listening, go to the website, link to the video. Yeah. It's it's really, really fun. It's great. And that that kind of changed my life and my trajectory because what happened is that app came out, it kind of blew up, went viral to the point where Breitbart was writing articles about it, mm -hmm. New York Post, um, you know, liberal, liberal press and and like maybe alt-righty press as well. And at the time I was very much in this bubble where you can, I, I, the joke within Equitable is that the, the premise behind it is like, we all understand that the wage gap is real. And right. This is a thing. It kind of exposed me <laughs> to- To people who don't. To people who don't even believe that there's a wage yeah. gap, you yeah. know? And despite the fact that there's evidence and all of these things. And also people who felt that this app was real in mm. a, in a non-comical way and felt like it was white genocide and like, whoa, that's oh, God. a, oh yeah. So I think that kind of opened me up to, well, I could make these jokes as a comedian. I could kind of play, uh, play around and explore these like tensions in society, but the people that are hearing that from a different perspective or hearing one thing mm -hmm. and they're not hearing the joke. And so that, that, that made me say, well, there's a few bridges to cross in communication and exploring these ideas. If the goal is to reach people, if that's right. your goal, then like saying the same jokes in the same way that you would say to one audience is not going to reach one other audience who sees everything like this as a threat. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I wouldn't, it makes perfect sense hearing you say it. I wouldn't assume, it wouldn't occur to me that part of your, for lack of a better word, like career calculations about the work that you're doing involve a greater degree of misunderstanding and potentially risk yeah. the larger your audience is. It's one oh, thing to yeah. be on a stage in San Francisco doing stand up with an audience that probably gets it and gets the joke. It's yeah. another to be online opening yourself up to all of that criticism absolutely has that i mean how does that change Do, are you more calculated in in what you write and what you say now does it uh i def i definitely feel like i'm more calculated in what i write and what i say and i think as i'm <laughs> it's it's i have i'm growing in two different fields that are you know have a lot of conflict with each other. And that is being like someone who is an equity, inclusion and belonging facilitator and someone who consults with organizations and the other is being a stand-up comedian. And mm -hmm. those two things should, quote unquote, according to certain people, be in conflict with each other. I don't think they necessarily have to be in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. um, but because I'm holding those two roles, it definitely informs how I show up in each one. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, I'm interested, and I don't know if it's part of the story. You're from the South. Yeah. You went to school in New York. Yeah. You moved to California. Yeah. Now you're in Cincinnati. Did a whole, all the, all the different regions. <laughs> is, the, is the Cincinnati part of it, uh, part of the work story? I think so. I think also, I think I got out, of, I, you know, grew up in rural South and was just like, you know, an artsy kid 
in the South. I had a teacher who um, high, in high school kind of sent me on this exchange program where I, I studied in Portland for a few months, my mm-hmm. senior year. Mm-hmm. And it was just like another world. I'm yeah. just like, oh, I'm not a weirdo here. Here I'm normal. <laughs> like, these are my people. <laughs> it was just everything made sense. So as soon as I could, I got the hell out of the South. Like, had, like yep. had to do it. And loved living in New York City. Loved living in San Francisco. And really enjoyed those cushy bubbles. Like, those bubbles are nice. For sure. Those bubbles are great. Um, but then when I met my current wife, fell in love, it kind of pulled me out. Okay. And we were back and forth. We were, we were long distance. And I would travel here quite often because I had flexibility in the work that I was doing. And I kind of fell in love with Cincinnati at the time. Cincinnati was like, compared to San Francisco, the cost of living was insane. Oh. I could not. That is the two ends of the spectrum in the United States, basically. Basically. For urban living. Yeah. yeah. I was just blown away. I could not believe it. Yep. I could not believe it. And I, uh, I can acknowledge how privileged that even sounds to come to a place and be like, oh, my God, you guys. <laughs> it's not cheap here. <laughs> like, no, but it's true. It is true, yeah. That's the danger of living in Cincinnati is you can't go anywhere else from here because you can't afford it. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. And then that, that, and I think that's, so it, it made more sense for me to move here than for her to move to San yeah. Francisco. Yep. It just was like, I can't ask you to like leave your home that you own mm-hmm. to move into an apartment where we'll be living with roommates, you know, Yeah. yeah. as adult, it's just a different lifestyle. And, um, came here and luckily, like I, I, I was working remotely so I could work from anywhere. And a lot of the work that I did and, you know, a lot of the facilitation work, I have to travel for it anyway. And mm-hmm. comedy, I was just like, well, I'm, I'll be in the Midwest. I'll be in Chicago more and it'll, it'll work out. It's a great central place to tour from if your it's job is mobile. Great, yeah, yep. it's a great central place to tour from. And I think that it's, it's definitely been a challenge actually adjusting to the reality of Cincinnati. And, mm-hmm. you know. How long has it been? It's been a, about a year. Okay. So since I moved here, I moved here a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I was going back and forth for a year. So okay. it's been a year since I've lived here, lived here. And now you're here. Now I'm here. And, but I mean, it's got to also be, you're not right in the thick of things. The yeah. opportunities, you know, if you're going to do stand-up, you're not going to walk down to exactly. the club and do a couple of sets and walk home or catch the train or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of have to go out of my way a little bit to make opportunities. And yeah. um, the comedians here are very warm and welcoming. They're very sweet. And so that's been great, but I, I I'm still missing the the amount of like stand up opportunities that yeah. I had in front of me. And I think that also I think there's the it's not only the stand up, but I think what I had access to in San Francisco was access to um, an international media network. Yep. So where Yeah, I, you're gonna get seen if you're doing good work. You're gonna if you're doing good work, you're gonna get seen right. where I feel like here in Cincinnati, it's a little bit harder to be seen totally. on that national, international level. Yeah. Does, does working in the Midwest, in terms of that discussion about the risk of what you can say, does it make you better? It absolutely makes me better. Because you have like, to broaden like the material you have for to your broaden audience? It and you have to broaden it. You have to speak in plain language. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it makes me, it actually makes me, it's made me more critical mm of the bubble that I was in and where I'm coming from. And it made, it's made me more critical of like, wait a minute, like what are the things that we are 
saying that we want, is nitpicking on certain things actually going to be the best result for the end goal? Yeah. And I think the great thing about being here in Cincinnati is that it helped me see like, wait, what's at the heart of this? Like, what is, what is actually this person trying to say? What, what are the values that I'm trying to make sure get risen up, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, it, I think anytime you're in a place where you have to compromise and, and you have to work with people of difference, it makes you better. Like, right. And I think what happens on either end of the spectrum is that when you're surrounded by everyone who thinks like you, that's how fundamentalism happens. Yeah, totally. And of all, of all stripes. Of all stripes. Yeah. And I think it's, I think there's something that there's a give and a take uh, with, with the compromise of living here. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I feel like it's, it's made me sharper. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I started off by asking you your work and you gave, probably as salient an answer to that as anybody has ever given on the show. But now let's talk about your job. What are you actually doing? The the app, you talked about that. You talked yeah. about the play. Some of those things are kind of in the past or, or at least simmering on the back burner right yeah. now. What are you doing right now? So my job, I do storytelling work for organizations. Mm -hmm. And I, so that is, so that's like what brings in income mm -hmm. is one of the, that thing. The other thing that is bringing in income is, uh, doing trainings on diversity and inclusion. And it's so funny because I absolutely fucking hate the term diversity and inclusion. I hate it. I think it's jargony. I don't think people understand it. Um, I think it, it's one of those things, like even the word privilege, that can get turned into so many different things. Yeah. So I was like, what is that? But it just becomes a code word it with becomes no a actual code meaning. Word with of no its meaning. Own. And yeah. that's where it's at now. But I, I have to use that language because when HR companies hire me, they're looking for someone who does diversity and inclusion work. Right. But what I actually do is help people culture shift. Okay. Shift the culture of their organizations, really focus on how they can connect with each other, understand how their identity and the lens that they, they have um, shapes and colors their world and mm -hmm. how if you're trying to communicate with someone if you're trying to work with someone or serve someone you have a lens and so a lot of the work that i'm doing right now is just helping people see hey you do have a lens right you do have a bias right mm -hmm. that's when that's code word for yeah lens but i feel like even if i say the word bias like people get all up in arms and they're all defensive all i'm defensive. not biased yeah yeah so i just say hey we have and i think that that is really interesting and in being like how can i how can I tell a story? How can I help shape people's understanding without worrying about jargon? I feel like, mm. and I think the issue with a lot of that work, right? Diversity, inclusion, belonging work is that we're using language that's meant for people academically, yeah. like yeah. privilege, institutionalized racism, microaggressions. Mm -hmm. These are academic terms for sociologists who are studying this. Totally. This is not for everyday people who are trying to figure out how can this right. shape my world? Like, what does this have to do with me? Like, yeah. and I think my, my job is to say like, let's make this relatable. Hmm. Let's make this more tangible. How do you do that? I mean, you walk into a corporate environment where you know that they don't have a frame of reference for the jargon. Right. How, I mean, practically, that makes sense what you're talking about, about putting it in, in real language, but like, is it exercises? Is it? It's exercises. It's conversations. I really use storytelling. Okay. I, I help people 
the other the other word I like is self-awareness. I help people gain self-awareness by just saying like, hold on, let's roll back. Like one simple question, like how was money talked about in your home? Hmm. How yeah. did people talk about money in your home, right? Let's, was it something that they talked about? Was it something that was hidden? How did they talk about people of different classes? It's okay. the Midwest. We don't talk about money here. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, like, but let's talk about how does that yeah. shape how you see it now? Totally. And I think doing things like that, that take it out of, race and gender first that help people see, hey, mm. ooh, my frame, my, my way of seeing the world was shaped right. by certain things. Yep. And if it's shaped around money, what else could it be shaped around? Yep. These lenses that I have aren't just about race or, or gender. I have them, period. I if have I them, accept period. them in some places, I'm more likely to accept them in others. Exactly. And yeah, I yeah. think often I start with things like, uh, I think people don't talk about geography enough. I think people don't talk about class enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like to start in those places and also gender because we've all been gendered. Everybody has the experience of like growing up and being told what you should be as yeah. a boy or a girl. Everyone has that, that's super accessible. Mm -hmm. So I start there um, because starting at race is like yeah. not helping jumping people. Jumping in the deep end of the pool. It's jumping in the deep end of the pool and you kind of kind of wade in the wade in the water first. and. Gender is so thick in our world that even before a baby is born, we're like throwing parties about gender and buying, totally. buying things for this person based on what we think their gender are going to be. We're projecting all these things. Yep. So everyone knows, everyone has a very like real sense of what that means. Right. You know. Right. Do you, are you seeing change in the work that you're doing? I am seeing change and I'm, I've, I feel like I've, I've gotten more hopeful and people are making connections and just the things that people are sharing afterwards. They're like, cool. oh my gosh, like I didn't think about it this way. Thank you so much. And, and I feel like my job is really planting the seed hmm. and for, and planting the seed and increasing curiosity because I feel like this work, uh, the real work of understanding like where we are, where, how we've gotten to where we are and how we can get out of it and really going to a more equitable world um, is a long-term yeah. process. Yeah. And so often when I'm brought in, it's for a day or two hours. And, or if I'm telling a story or a video it, like that, that helps someone access it, it's like five minutes. But yeah. it's planting the seed that will, I hope will lead to more curiosity. Yep. And I think that there needs to be a kind of gradual, we need to be more strategic about what we're putting on people when. Mm -hmm. And I even think, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about writing recently. Um, is that even when we say things on a cultural, like political scale of like, oh, the president is racist or this person is racist, blah, 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 is racist. this is racism. I think we need to be more strategic about how and when we use that because a lot of people don't even understand what that means. And what they're getting is that, oh, anything that you don't like, you're calling racism. Yeah. That's not the case. But I think until people understand that this country, the institutions that we created are inherently racist. Yep. And as people who uphold those institutions, we are going to do and say racist things. And when you point out examples of that, this is an example of that until people understand that it's going to be hard to come in from the other angle of just pointing out who is saying right. is, is doing and racist. It, yeah. Things. And it's not a, I mean, it's not, this is what you're saying, but it's not a binary thing. It's not either you're racist or you're not. We, exactly. we all are in some way, we all have a lens that could stand to be 
broadened or improved. We all do. And I think the, the problem that I also have with diversity inclusion trainings and a lot of this work is that it hasn't given black people and people of color the space to explore their own internalized mm. racism. Yeah. And that's a lot. That's where I'm really excited about my work going. Cool. Um, both like professionally and creatively is like, what is that space? Like what, there's so much to unpack in our own communities around like what we've internalized. Yeah. And really that's what a lot of how to be a white man was about. Right on. The second time I did it was really like what that, what was the black female character's idea of success? And like, mm. where did that come from? You know? Yeah. Just opening up all of those Opening up completely. Conversations a little more. Are there, is there anywhere that people can see the play in either incarnation performed? Uh, no, you can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Sorry. No, I ref I'm very protective of my baby in that way. Cool. But um, there, I think that there is a there is um, a plan to kind of turn that into a different medium, or either turning into Good. a web series nice. or something like that, where it will be more tangible. But I. I, I, I feel very strongly that a live experience should be a live experience mm -hmm. and that what is online is should be geared for online because there are going to be, yeah. you have to control for who's in the room. Totally. And what did happen at every How to Be a White Man performance was I'm like, wait, 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 I'm not going to let you leave until you you hear this talk back. So there was always mm, a talk nice. back after every some processing. It's some processing just to give people space to hear from other people what they took from it. Like, give the performers a chance to speak and how they understood their roles. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of necessary <laughs> with a piece like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, it, part of that uh, broadening of your lens, just hearing that somebody might've seen exactly the same thing you just saw and taken it a completely different way. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. You're, you're in this state of transition. Sometimes it's, it's funny. It's just the world that we live in. Like if you go to your website, everything's great. You're, you're taking off. Things yeah. are going nuts. You're doing amazing work. Daily, mm -hmm. you are putting the work into it, figuring it out. Yeah. I'm interested in, for somebody that doesn't know a lot of what it takes, because you, you, you're casting the wide net. Mm -hmm. Now you're doing, like you're still doing the stand-up. You're doing the speaking and teaching. You still have your writing projects that are going on. Yeah. What is the, what is the machinery that you interact with every day to keep your work in that broader sense mm. going that people wouldn't think about. Um, I mean, are you, I would imagine that that involves agents and managers yeah. and PR and like all that stuff. Absolutely. It's, uh, it is, so I, I have a management team that's like mainly working on like commercial work because like mm -hmm. acting and stuff mm -hmm. is something that I do too. Um, there is, I am looking for more of an agent to, to focus specifically on stand-up comedy. And I, it, it's so funny because like between the acting and the stand-up comedy and the writing, all of those need their own. Their own network. Their own managers and yeah. networks. And so uh, there's that. There is, I think, learning is something that I'm constantly trying to to do. Like online learning. I've, I've been taking classes at Second City to say, mm. okay, like how can I sharpen my skill set and prepare to be pitching pilots? I think last, the last couple of years, I don't know if this was prominent on the website or not, but I've worked with a team of people to create pilots of TV shows mm -hmm. and I've entered competitions and, and gotten to a certain place where then we met with 
certain networks, met with Comedy Central, met with people from Hulu and, awesome. and Refin- Refinery29 and mm-hmm. got some no's, which is great because I feel like that's part of the process, right? Yeah, you gotta that's how you it. learn about how yeah. to make it better. You got to get some no's to get some yeses. Yeah. And so I think part a big part of my process now is like really humbly going back to, okay, what do I need to really work on to sharpen? Mm. Because I think going back to when I said that I was incredibly talented as a kid, I think I coasted on that Mm. a lot. Uh And especially with stand-up, because I was comfortable on stage from the jump. Yeah. You didn't have to work. I didn't have to work. Yeah. And I'm at a point where I'm like, oh, there are some things that doing that work would have strengthened that now these muscles are weaker because I didn't have to work in that. Hmm. So I'm kind of going back and like doing a lot of work on writing and restructuring things and learning learning specifically writing for late night versus writing for a pilot versus writing different types of stand-up for different audiences and really expounding on that. Wow. Do you do that with people? Is that stuff that you're doing on your own? How yeah. much of that's collaborative? And You know, it's great. It's, that's a great question because I just started working with um, someone. We, you know, he reached out to me who I think would be a great guest in this podcast, Sean Braley. I don't know if you know oh, him. Oh, I know Sean. Yeah, yeah. I love Sean. Yeah, we just started writing together. Oh, this that's so great. Super cool. Sean is wonderful. Isn't he wonderful? Yeah, I love what he and Chris. If uh, I've posted stuff on the Distillers social media, but the Cincinnati stories, what he and Chris are doing in Cincinnati is so, so cool. Yeah. I have such a great degree of admiration for the stories that they're telling and this thing that they built and created. That's really cool. How did you and Sean hook up? So we just th- saw him do it on the stand-up comedy circuit, uh-huh. and you know he had known Sarah, my wife, and. And then he kind of approached me a couple of weeks ago. I was like, hey, I'd like to start writing Love with it. you. And, he, and there are people that I meet sometimes and I'm just like, yes, let's be friends. Please, let's be <laughs> friends. And he was one of those people. Oh, that's so great. it's really cool. And I'm, I'm really excited about just writing with him. And it, the way that I would write before is really, you know, I have a tight circle of friends. I have comedians that I really admire. And think of a joke or, or a joke kind of comes to me via conversation. And the things that make me laugh really loud are the things that I'm like, okay, this is material, you know? Um, And sometimes those things end up working on stage and sometimes they Mm -hmm. don't, but I kind of like talk it out first and then I, and then I get there. And a lot of comedians have different ways of writing and that's one of them. Sean is very much uh, of a more of a writer, writer, like writing everything out. And I think, you know, and working and collaborating with different people, I'm like, okay, how, how will writing, writing everything out, Change Help what me. you do, yeah. Yeah, change what I do. So cool. And is there something specific that you guys are working on, or is it real early? At this, yeah, it's real early right now. We're really just kind of like helping each other, you know, either with like pieces that we're curious about, like what's another angle that this can take, or something like that, which is really cool. Cool. Because Sean is so different from me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, but that's what seems great. I mean, the idea of you and Sean working together seems like this wonderful collaboration of, of opposites. Yeah. And I think that like Sean and there's a few other comedians here in Cincinnati that are like have this really, and just Cincinnati in general, I met a lot of like really cool, pastory, like Christian types of people uh-huh. <laughs> who coming from like the, anti-religious Bay Area. Right, like, right, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm queer. I'm like all, like all these things kind of like left the South. Like it was really interesting to be like, okay, you guys are 
religious, but you're not religious like Louisiana people in a scary <laughs> way. You know, like, I'm like, you're not evangelicals. You're you're like cool with it. I don't know. So it's a whole thing. That a, brand of because that's my like, I, and I've said this on other shows, so I won't get into it. But like that <laughs> evangelical thing is my distant past background yeah. yeah and there is that whole sort of like okay we we believe these things but we're actually kind of cool and we're into social justice <laughs> and we're into equity and yeah you know like a little more self-aware yeah and i you know what i can get down with that yeah totally yeah no i love uh I, like i said i can't say enough good things about what sean's doing and the way that he's approaching it and like there's a lot of people because of my background that I come up against that there's this religious impulse behind what they do that I just get icky about. Yeah. That's not, that's not Sean. Sean is a sweet, sweet person and a genuine, like the stuff that he's doing is super genuine. Right. So I love it. Yeah. Cool. How is your work transitioning now? Uh, and I and now I guess I mean like you were talking about you um, you referenced sort of that period in 2016, mm-hmm. which was a which was a real specific moment. Yeah. In in sort of race and equity and and mm-hmm. the culture in America, and now things have just blown up and gone so apeshit. So apeshit. Since shit. then, yeah. How is that influencing? You're still doing the equity work, mm-hmm. but like, um, how are you? looking at what happens from here on out in terms of, it sounds like your focus is shifting a little bit. Yeah. In terms of how you're phrasing all of that. Is that coalesced into something that you see like a direction for the future? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of things that I, I see kind of coming down. Um, one, is, one is really just the, the very real way thing that I'm, I'm wondering around, around and, being very curious about right now is like we're in un- inundated with all this inundated whatever the word is <laughs> sorry we're with you um with all this like bad news on a regular yeah. basis yep. and i've been thinking a lot about how that has increased my stress level how i can feel it in my body oh, like yeah. this tension in my body and so i'm really curious about like disconnecting from that like what does that look like mm. and so i'm i'm curious about it on a creative way like playing around like currently writing this web series about this woman who ha- just wants to create a positive news like show uh-huh. but there's so much bad news it's just like really <laughs> she can't break through <laughs> yeah she can't break through so i mean there's there's things like that into the very real tangible like when i'm with people how do i facilitate conversations that help them disconnect from all of that because they're bringing that into the rooms that I'm in, yeah. right? So I think that's that's a shift I'm making. I think I'm, I, I would love, like in my imagination, I would love myself to get to a point where I am a really practical hands-on person that can do things and make things and recycle things in really cool ways (laughs) (laughs) because I I feel like all of my skill sets are all these kind of like you know intellectual yeah you know like creative things more esoteric super esoteric but I think being faced with the very real threat of like where we are climate wise I'm like all right, how can I I think that's the question I have now of like how can I like live with with this planet in a more meaningful way and how can i make that fun yeah you know oh, so cool. so i'm i'm fascinated by that 
we, so Sarah and I, we just got married in March and our honeymoon was actually on an earth ship in Taos, New Mexico, wow. which was my choice. Everyone thinks that it was <laughs> her choice and no one, like, no one kind of saw this. Nobody gives you credit for that. Yeah, no one gives me credit and no one kind of saw it coming that like, wait, you want to live, you wanted to go to this earth ship, this completely sustainable environment that was gorgeous by the way okay so what is i've heard this term before is it like a little mini biodome what is an it's earth it's basically so it's one i just want to it's made from recycled materials and it is gorgeous so they basically um they figured out a way to have your a home that is completely sustainable okay. so it's kind of built into the ground it's kind nice. of halfway into the ground where it's insulated yeah yeah so it's cool. The the building material is made from old tires with mud all around them. So it's uh -huh. kind of half adobe. And then there's brick on the inside, but the bricks are made from like old cans with mud all around it. Right so on. we can just make bricks this way. We yeah. Don't, yeah. It's like, why aren't we doing this? And then it's decorated with all these like old glass bottles that are cut and dyed. So they have all these beautiful oh, like cool. glass decorations of different animals or shapes that are like gorgeous so you have these gorgeous glass walls and on the inside there's a greenhouse with food that can grow your food all the water that is used is like cycled through to water those Crazy. plants and you flush the toilet and it goes i don't know yeah 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 uh completely um solar panel electricity so it's where did Super you find sustainable. this place? In New Mexico, in Taos, New Mexico. But were you like looking for it online or did you know about it? I think it's one of those it? things like you see like one of those viral videos online was just like this place is completely <laughs> sustainable. And I, and I saw this like tropical like building. I'm like, what is this? And I'm just kind of like, we could do our honeymoon here. Yeah. We could have a honeymoon in New Mexico. How cool. Yeah. And it made me really, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I knew how to do things with my hands. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's, I mean, we're sitting in a workshop. Yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, I love that. I, uh, that thing, I, I get it. Yeah. I've always been, the professional things that I've always done have always been esoteric yeah and and ethereal and like yeah. talking and radio and marketing and stuff but for a few years i worked as a carpenter and i worked as a welder Ooh. and those are the jobs that i miss yeah those are the things that i stopped doing because you couldn't make a living in this economy yeah you know working as a welder in a right to work state with no unions i um, uh this is necessary for this conversation i was really high the other day <laughs> Because I was in Denver, so whatever. Uh -huh. Also, I smoke weed on a regular basis. Not a regular, not as regular as I want, but I was really high, and I thought to myself two things. These are important <laughs> thoughts I need to share with the world. I'm excited about this. <laughs> One was, what if the answer is like mandated that like 50% of everything that we use has to be made locally? Uh -huh. Like kind of moving back to that place of like, let's just like. Let's just really just like get it locally, right. support local businesses. Can't be made in China. Can't be made in China. Yep. You know, let, let's really support our own communities with things that are made here. And totally. like that, that was like, I'm like, the world needs to do this. Like, it's just like <laughs> every country should start doing this. Like cut down on all the shipping and all the. Right. Um, but that's going to be my goal is just like really get to a point where I'm like getting everything local. Yeah. It's a hard, it's hard to do. It is. And it's something, it's a behavior change. Yeah. We, we, so my partner's name is Sarah as well. Awesome. Um, she made a big, last year, uh, a big personal push to stop using single-use plastics. Mm, yeah. Super hard. So 
so hard. I mean, it's just stupid stuff. It's like, it's not, it's not, um, I say it's hard. It's hard because it requires you to pay attention. And most of the time you don't have to pay attention. So if I go to the store and I'm buying salsa. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, the stuff that I like is in plastic and the stuff that maybe isn't so good is in glass. And I'm going to buy the stuff that's in glass because that recycles in the plastic. I mean, it's like, yeah, talk about privilege. But but it's a decision to be made that I have to keep in my mind. All to, the time. Yeah. It's and it's so hard. Yeah. You know, it may be like the slightest inconvenience and that's fine. It may be a few dollars more or a few pennies more, but those little, yeah, those little decisions make a difference. Yeah. What was the other? You said there were two things. So, those two, so that was one. And then two was, I think that the way, and you said you were a journalist, so I think that the way that people write articles now with headlines is all wrong. And I think... Oh my God, yeah. It's it's so misleading. And so I think... Clickbait garbage. It's clickbait. Yeah. And I think the headline should just be questions. Like, do you want to learn about China's economy? Like, right. that should be the headline. Yeah. Because I feel like nobody's reading. No, we don't read anymore. No, because we don't trust headlines anymore. We don't trust... Yeah, we don't trust anything. We see a headline, we're like, got it. Think I, I know what it is. Yeah. But you don't. You have to actually read the thing. So I'm just like, this should be implemented. These were my ideas. That should be some sort of a movement. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's, there, there was that weird like Dutch film movement where they were only going to use natural light. And there's like, you know, there should be like a journalist movement, yeah. like a conscious rejection of clickbait right. headlines. Yeah. I would get fully behind that. I know. Part of what I, I do for a living now is like web marketing stuff. Uh, so like SEO. Yeah. And it's that crap. It's yeah. like, you know, the optimal number of words. It it's like nine hashtags on an Instagram post has been statistically proven to, you know, it's like such. To what? What does it do? To drive the most traffic, oh, wow. to drive the most engagement. The magic number is apparently nine. Oh my gosh, didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, all this stuff, it's like, yeah, yeah, anyway, I'm fully behind getting rid of all of that crap yeah. and actually writing real real things and talking about real things. It is. And, and I think the other thing is... Um, I went to a secret meeting last year that I guess I can talk about now. <laughs> Speaking of that, on on the um, the data void online, have you heard that term? No. So basically, the data void is basically this gap where if I'm a guy and I'm looking and I'm genuinely curious about like how can I get a girlfriend, mm -hmm. if I type in Google, why can't I get a girlfriend? the abscess of actual knowledge or information is going to be because of feminism and women are ruining. Yeah, so right. these are, these are like data voids on online where like the stuff that the algorithm is pushing is only the shoutiest crap and not the actual helpful. Not information. only the shoutiest crap, but people like really evil people, Yeah, you know, and I use that, I use that word specifically have figured out how to hack that yep. where they are radicalizing people through that, right. you know, like, Dylan Roof, who is the man who mm -hmm. shot up nine people in South Carolina for a minute, was radicalized through the data yep. voids. But like he started off like playing video games. He saw one thing that led to another. So like how can we flip it where, you know, if I'm searching like black on black crime, mm -hmm. I won't get automatically get a lot of like white supremacist yeah. right. you know, information. And that's how people are being radicalized. So the, the secret conversation was like, how can we create content and how can be we be strategic about our content to help fill those data voids? Was it like a fire, by, fire with fire thing? Like we're going to throw so much information out that it's going to counteract the trolls? Th that's the goal. Wow. Yeah. Why was it secret? 
It was secret. Be- I don't, don't know. T- don't tell any secrets. Like, was it secret because this organization is like a shadow no, resistance? No, it was a really cool like network of people from all, all types of work. Um, and it wasn't like necessarily shadow, but I think being very public about like this is the goal yeah. then, then they then you just become a target then you become a target right so oops sorry but I'm trusting that people who listen to this podcast are good people there's five six people that listen <laughs> to this podcast and they're all they're all delightful people it's gonna be it's gonna be fine no that's exciting I love all of that yeah because you know back to sort of what you said when I just asked the direction you were talking about um, talking about climate change mm-hmm. everything right now is depressing as hell yes the economy is about to tank. All the indicators are sending us into another depression. Yeah. The Amazon's... Right, on burning. Burning. Yeah. If we thought there was hope for climate change, that nailed like the coffin. It's like everything is so dark. Yeah. And finding, A, any action that seems meaningful. Yeah. And just finding anything to read online that gives any hope is a huge, huge need. Right. So I'm fully behind like anything that injects any hope and certainly any levity. You know, using your comedic yeah. Voice I mean, that's to the goal. Raise awareness around that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a like a, as meaningful of definition of work as I can certainly come up <laughs> with right now. Uh, I have I have one more question for you, and it's because um, we have a mutual friend, Kate. Uh, Hennessine, who's yeah. who's been on the show before, and um, anytime anybody refers a guest to me and says, "Hey, you should talk to this person," that's how I found out about you is because of, through Kate. Um, I go back to them and I say, "Hey, I'm going to talk to Luna tomorrow. Is there anything you want me to ask?" And she said, "Ask her about your about her wedding." Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the that is the final question is I'm supposed to ask you about your wedding. Oh, sweet. Well, uh, we had the most amazing wedding ever. And speaking of work, like I. It's funny because everyone talks about wedding planning and how much of a pain it was. I loved it. Oh. It was fun for me. And um, But you're a show person. I'm a you're show person. person. I'm a show person. And, yeah. and actually in, in doing that wedding, I'm like, I need to produce things again. <laughs> yeah. Like I miss producing yeah. things. Oh, I get that. Oh, yeah. I have that in me too, where if I'm not involved in the production of something, yeah. whether it's a box that I'm going to build or like a stage production for a while, I used yeah. to like you know, tour manage bands and stuff. Oh, so awesome. I get it. Like being involved in putting a show together yeah. is, a, is a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. And it was, and it's really funny because in the process of the wedding, I was just like the run of show. I mean, <laughs> this wedding that I'm in, uh-huh. the produ- like I even had to like change some of the stuff from like production schedule to like wedding. It's a wedding. The wedding was awesome. We got married in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh-huh. which is two of our favorite cities. And we, Knew no matter where we got married, um, people would have to travel for it. So yeah. it was just like, let them go to a really a place where they can Hell have a vacation yeah. too. Yeah. And it was basically a three day festival. <sighs> and we had the Friday, like the wedding was on Saturday. The Friday before, we had a bounce dance class. So I know you, you may not know what bounce music is, but it's basically New Orleans booty twerking music. Uh-huh. We had one of my good friends teach everybody. Uh, how to do that and it was amazing and now she's doing bounce classes like she's just that's her thing now she just teaches like oh I didn't know this is a thing so now she's teaching people bounce dance classes in Chicago Um, we had a food truck the day of the wedding Um, we had the the place where we stayed was Maison de McCarty so it was this beautiful bed and breakfast that had a pool we had mermaids in the pool (laughs) we had a champagne lady greek guests with champagne like right she had the hoop skirt on like uh-huh. you just grab it um 
we had a fire twirler who was there. It was just like... That's a party. Doing, it's a party. Fire twirler, Brass twirler band, makes a party. People were singing. It was just amazing. That's great. It was just... Re- but the, the cool thing about it that I was like, oh, how can I do this all the time was that it felt like a festival yeah. of people who just really wanted to do well right and on. love in their environment. And it was... It really was awesome to give people three days of just connecting with other people. Yeah. And we, Sarah and I are both community, community people. So that wedding felt very, it wasn't, it wasn't it was about you. us. It wasn't like, it's, it's my day. Okay. <laughs> it was, that was not it. Um, and so we really just wanted to bring a community of amazing people together. And it was so lovely. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, there's a, a couple of Venezuelan couple that I interviewed on the show last year, uh, Anne-Marie Herrera and Luis Laya, and uh, they're food people. Luis mm. is a chef and an engineer. Mm-hmm. So he made this thing that's like this mobile grill. But the same, same deal. I feel like I need to hook you guys up because yeah. they are all about, let's do these events. Let's get people together. Let's facilitate conversation that's meaningful. Let's have food. Yeah. There's so like it seems like such a strong reaction to everything that's going on culturally. Right. Among so many people is like let's get to people together and enjoy each other and yeah. feel love and like to, let's take just care feel of each it. other. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all about that. Even the introvert in me is like, yeah, I want to be a I want to be on the sidelines watching watching <laughs> all of that. <laughs> no, I love it. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Well, um people can obviously Continue to follow what you're doing. Yeah. We will link to your website on awesome. our website if people want to hire you for the trainings that you do. If yeah. people want to find more more out about your stand-up. Um, and it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. It's been such a great day. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. It's so totally my pleasure. Thanks for coming out early and sitting under the neon with me and yeah, drinking some coffee. It's been fun. Thank you. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live inside the workshop at Cincinnati's American Sign Museum, located at 1330 Monmouth Avenue in Cincinnati's Camp Washington neighborhood. I want to say a sincere thanks to events coordinator Sarah Evans for making us at home and providing the perfect setting for this conversation. With over 20,000 square feet showcasing over 100 years of American commercial signage, the American Sign Museum is, as their website says, a walk through the ages of technology and design. Check out our website at thedistillerpodcast.com for Angie Lipscomb's photos of our time at the museum, and you can also link to their website and social media pages. And stop by, say hi to Sarah, take a tour. They're open Wednesday through Saturday from 10 to 4 and Sundays from noon to 4. And be sure to say you heard it on The Distiller when you do. Huge thanks to my guest, Luna Malbro. Luna is currently working on so much stuff, and the best way to keep up on all of it is to check out her website, lunaisamerica.com. There you can see information about the Equitable app, about her play, How to Be a White Man. You can see dates for her stand-up performances and more. And we have links at thedistillerpodcast.com to her website, social media pages, and some videos about the Equitable app, some of her stand-up. I, for one, can't wait to see what is next for Luna. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Logos by Scott Ryan. Design videos by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. Check out the photos of this episode. You have to see them. It is such a beautiful place. Photos for this episode by Angie Lipscomb. And you can also find links to Angie's work on our website as well. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen and download every episode at thedistillerpodcast.com where you can see links, photos of the guests, 
and a map of all of our show locations. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. Follow, like, and share our posts on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you want to help us make more episodes, just click on the Become a Patron button on our website for more information. And finally, please do take a second to rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. It makes a big difference to helping get the word out. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson. Thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.